So if you could touch people and see their past, their present, and their future, would you always wear gloves? Probably, yeah. It's a rogue situation there. Very similar to well, rogue. Well, this is something... Yeah, this is something I was wanting clarification on, and I'm assuming at least one of you's read the book because you're both big Stephen King heads. What, what's the deal with the power? Because the movie's kind of unclear. Is it just the moment of their death, or is it just like their whole life? Like he just like mind melts with them. It's 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 like a weird sort of uh, play on The Shining. Really, it's just uh, that there's a bit more clairvoyance uh, tied up into it. What it made me think of is one of those video games where there's uh, like a a heavy context button. Like a button that is like very contextually specific, like a Chris Walken's psychic power deploys itself contextually as needed is what I'm getting at. Uh, press A to solve murder. Press A to determine whether or not this politician is crooked. <laughs> you know, whatever you need, it's going to give you. Well, it seems, though, I mean, the book doesn't say this, but it seems, though, um, will and intent do derive it a little bit. Like, what I'm, okay. what I'm hunting for. Like, well, okay, so what's the secret in this locket if I'm having this conversation with the guy in the press corps? You see, he rolls investigate a mystery. Yeah. <laughs> thank well, Arthur, thank you. I was about to work uh, up to whether or not this was a perception check or, yeah, uh, what kind of check this was. Uh, I'm glad we got this out of the way because these are the kind of things that uh, you can get hung up on that will stop you from doing good analysis. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, so, hey, hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Good Trash Genrecast. We gather around a table to discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course, and this week's film is probably no exception. It's Lesser Cronenberg. It's David Cronenberg's uh, Christopher Walken-helmed film, The Dead Zone, uh, based on the Stephen King novel. We do uh, love us some Stephen King, and I'm sure some novel adaptation stuff will come up here and there as we talk about it. But I am still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. Uh, and remote from an undisclosed location, I am Dalton Stewart, uh, being a good uh, citizen and not contaminating Arthur and Dustin with my potentially bad air. He's gone undercover. He's gone rogue. Yeah, Dalton has not been diagnosed. He's not sick. Um, he's just possibly been in contact. And so he's just being wise and uh, helpful uh, to us all, as you all should be at home, dear listener. Well, I'm also workshopping just if I need to go totally off the grid, how easy is it to still call into the show every week? Well, if you go totally off the grid, you won't have power. Well, yeah, look, again, this is why we're workshopping. This is phase one. It's There's a lot of phases, much like uh, an IP universe. I see, I see. So, um, well, very good. I'm glad you're here meeting with us um, from uh, the Quantum of Solace, and uh, <laughs> we appreciate that um, very much, Dalton. So, uh, anyway, uh, in case you're tuning into the show for the very first time, we need to let you know what's about to happen, uh, because this is not a review show, it's an analysis show, and that does mean we're going to spoil the show, or the movie, the show. I mean, the movie is kind of a show. You go to the show. You go to the picture show. Yeah, you got, that's what we used to say. When, even Back when, when you were a kid. Even when I was a kid, which is the 90s. Which and is, you could see two movies for a nickel. No, you could not see two movies for a nickel. But you that could was, Yeah, that, that was the 1890s, correct? <laughs> you were very vague on that deliberately, it seemed. He went to the Nickelodeon. He didn't watch Nickelodeon. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, I'm not going to address my age on this particular I'm episode. not one to talk as I sit here in a back brace with a cane. Yeah, that's true. Um, Arthur actually looks older than I do today. Um, it's no, kind of... Arthur's just cosplaying as Chris Watkins' character today. <laughs> oh, right? It's very true. I've got my bad leg. Um, but anyway, uh, we're going to be uh, spoiling the show, and what we'll do, though, or this film, uh, we're going to do this... A- a- 
later on in the program. So if you've never seen The Dead Zone, never read it, never watched the TV series, which I never watched, um, if you've never done any of those kind of things, um, you can still tune in for the first you know, third or so of, the, of this program and not be spoiled. What we do is a, a little bit of a synopsis, which is, you know, again, spoiler-ish in, insofar as that you get an idea of what's going to happen. Uh, then we do uh, thumbs, thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, and that's kind of a spoiler light like a review might be that you might read in uh, the Chicago Sun-Times or wherever. And then we move into expanding the syllabus, which is a little bit spoiler light of spoiler moderate kind of territory. And then uh, we get the heavy shine on uh, when we do the uh, getting down to business and analysis. And there'll be some kicky music to let you know that that's about to happen. So um, you've been warned, dear listener. Arthur, do you have a synopsis for us today? As a matter of fact, I do. Thanks, pal. Based on the Stephen King novel of the same name, The Dead Zone is an example of the power of King at his peak. Not long after the book's 1979 release, the film went into development. After bouncing around, Dino De Laurentiis eventually got his hands on the project and brought in Deborah Hill to produce. With Cronenberg at the helm and Walken in the starring role, the movie came together. Johnny Smith is a school teacher who, after a car accident, wakes up from a five-year coma. Soon after waking, Johnny realizes two things. First, he now has some sort of psychic shine. Second, the world he knew passed him by. His girl married another man... A serial killer has terrorized Castle Rock, and the political spectrum has shifted. With a budget somewhere between 7 and $10 million and a box office return somewhere around $20 million, The Dead Zone was a modest financial success that landed well with the critics, including Roger Ebert, who gave the film three and a half stars. This is The Dead Zone. Very good, very good. Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars. Big fan. Hmm. Big fan. Interesting. Yeah. Uh. Love that Dino. I'll tell you what, Dino just got his money's worth uh, at a Hannibal in the Dead Zone. Um, that's that's the way to produce. You only need one or two if they both get TV shows. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yep. Just got to find you a good in, uh, intellectual property and just go at it from there. And uh, that's definitely his business model. So um, let's go around the table real quick and let's talk about um, our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Whether we like this movie or not. I'm going to go to you first, Dalton. Uh, what do you think? Do you like the Dead Zone, the film? You know, it's been a while since we watched a movie for this show that just kind of went through me uh, like uh, like so much gravy. Um, or like Taco Bell say, at 2 a.m. Yeah, exactly. It, there's, you know, it didn't hurt me. Uh, it didn't back me up. It didn't stop me from being able to live my life or anything. But, you know, it didn't move me. Um, even with something like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Thank you. I was wondering how long I could go uh, down this line of uh, metaphor. We watched Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, you know, a couple months back. Uh, and, you know, also a pretty bleh movie. But honestly, there's enough gross stuff in there that I couldn't stop shouting at my television. Uh, Dead Zone while I'm like really invested in its kind of vignette structure, um, you know, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know, I like that in a film more often than not. Uh, you know, so while, while I'm, I'm in on that by and large, usually this just didn't do a whole lot for me. And maybe it's because we spend so little time in the actual plot. Right. So uh, to, to not get too spoilery too early, this film is kind of structured in three larger bricks that contain lots of vignettes uh we have a uh walking uh, or johnny uh both getting and coming to terms with his gift we have the serial killer subplot and we have the martin sheen subplot and that's kind of the broad strokes of the film and there's just i think what it is is there's so much meat on these bones 
that I feel like I should probably go read The Damn Dead Zone, published in 1979. Uh, because despite my, um, you know, love of Christopher Walken, my appreciation for quite a few Cronenberg movies, uh, and my like of Stephen King as just kind of a, you know, purveyor of stories, uh, I, just, I don't know, this doesn't really light my, uh, my lights for me. I, I don't know. I know Dustin's a big fan of this film, or at least it kind of holds a place in his heart enough that he's seen it several times. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm very lukewarm on this. Um, uh, one of these days I'm going to have to read a Stephen King book. The only Stephen King book I've read is three fourths of the cell, uh, in my community college bookstore. That was uh, Stephen King's technophobia book where cell phones turn everybody into zombies. I think they made a John Cusack movie out of it. Anyway, uh, my, my point is every time we either do a Stephen King adaptation on this show or just, you know, one comes out and we all see it and talk about it in the case of like, the, you know, It or uh, Dr. Sleep, I, I always find myself either flummoxed that uh, everything seems confused or uh, bummed that I liked it so much and there wasn't quite enough of it. So I, I guess, again, I say a lot to say. I'll, I'll read a Stephen King eventually, probably. And maybe I'll start with this one because I, I'm really kind of enthralled with the premise of this. Uh, I like the visual style of these vignettes, which I've, I haven't really touched on yet. Or not the vignettes, rather. Uh, the, the psychic visions that Johnny gets. I, I do really like the way those are are shown to us because there is like a consistent through line in terms of the style, but they do play around uh, with different uh, ways of conveying the, the visions. I mean, it's obviously a lot of flat, uh, fast cuts and stuff, but there's um, a specificity, specificity to each one, I felt like, that I really enjoyed. So again, I'm, I'm not totally writing this one off. There are things I like about it. I enjoy all the performances quite a bit. Uh, I, I enjoy kind of the emotional complications that it presents, but by and large, yeah, not, I don't know, not, not lighting my world on fire this week, fellas. Fair enough, fair enough. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say, Arthur Gordon? Do you like The Dead Zone? I'm with Dalton on this. I think I think this is a movie that I'd seen it before a few years ago. I'd read the book. I probably watched the movie not long after reading the book. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I went through a big Stephen King phase in college, and so I read several, especially his early novels. I tried to do like a chronological read-through pretty early on and watch some of these movies. And I think that what so happens so often with a lot of these books uh, adaptations with King in particular, you know, these, these novels are pretty lengthy, you know, I, I guess Dead Zone's only about 400 pages, but there's so much in the margins and there's a lot of interior stuff that happens that it's hard to kind of get that across on screen. I think the same thing with Pet Cemetery, which is also, I think, been hard to adapt for similar reasons. And I think the movies that really do the best with it are the ones that get to kind of deep dive in the material. I think of it, I think of Dr. Sleep, uh, or you just kind of take a different route like The Shining, um, unless it's one based on a short story, which I think is usually uh, a little stronger. The Mist, where I think works really well, 1408, I have a lot of fun with. Uh, this, it just feels like they dive so quickly into the the dead zone element. You know, the, the accident happens really quickly, uh, and we don't have a lot of time to establish Johnny or his relationships uh, with his family or with uh, his fiance girlfriend. And so I think once that kind of comes back into the fold after the accident and he wakes up, uh, we really don't have a big connection point there with those characters or those relationships to kind of really understand the brevity of the situation uh, in the same way. I think Walken's doing a pretty good job here. I just don't think the script's that strong uh, overall. And, and 
I uh, I feel like the whole product is a little rushed. I think to Dalton's point and um, the way it moves so quickly, each of these subplots could be their own movie. Um, you know, him trying to reckon with if he should use his gift for good or not in the hunt for the uh, serial killer or, you know, trying to bring down this politician who we really don't get to see his rise until the last 20 to 30 minutes of the film. I, I think each of these could be their own movie. Um or at least a much longer movie. You know, Dalton, you mentioned uh, in our chat that this deserved another 15, 20 minutes, and I, I couldn't agree more. I think there's a lot more that could be developed there. And look at the film. I think, I don't know, maybe uh, outside of the vision stuff, I don't know that Cronenberg gets a lot to do or inject his style into this as much as some of his other works, at least from what I'm familiar with. But man, that first psychic vision with the fire, oh man, that's a, that's a money. That one is money. Ugh. That that one and the psychic vision with uh, Martin Sheen, which again, trying to be vague, those two, I, I immediately am like, oh hell, this is a Cronenberg movie. Okay, that's right. But yeah, I, I, and also how uh, kind of pervy the murder uh, vision is, yeah. also kind of made me go, that's Cronenbergy. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you, Arthur. I know exactly what you're saying. I could have used more of of that that touch uh, that we you know we kind of expect from him. And I, I think there's a lot more room to really dig into Johnny and his grappling with this. And I don't really think we get a good resolution with that either. Um, I think it's fine. Uh, you know, I wasn't mad we watched it. I wasn't mad I watched it again. I think that I could watch it again. And it's an easy watch. It's a tight, what, 90 minutes roughly, a little over maybe. Uh, it moves fairly well because of how it is broken up and that kind of trip tech structure that Cronenberg implements here. Um so all all in all, it's it's okay. I'm I'm you know I I think it's fine. I think it's you know there are worse Stephen King adaptations. Uh, there are better ones, and so this feels kind of maybe B C tier. Um, and it's been so long, really, you know, to read the book. I don't really have a clear recollection of how much I you know like the book. I think the concept is really interesting, and definitely if you're fascinated with King and that idea of the shine as a through line in a lot of his books, I think it's definitely. Uh, must read or must see on in that regard but overall i'm kind of eh. very good very well, good arthur yeah arthur's kind of our resident stephen king expert by and large dustin i you would be the the cronenberg expert uh, of the three of us how how you feel but our expert uh you 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 seem to bristle at that uh descriptor so we can walk that back but my well, point is you like the man's work a lot i think to be fair of the three of us he's probably the expert on cronenberg Insofar exactly. as I, well, yeah, most familiar in this, in with this him. particular setting, um, yeah, setting. <laughs> yeah. I, I might. I be. think I gave enough qualifiers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I have seen more Cronenberg, um, and yeah, it, it does feel because I did read the novel and I reread the novel this week uh, in preparation for the show because I do my homework, um, and uh, in doing so, I did notice, and we'll talk more about this when we get down to analysis some subtle changes here and there, narratively speaking, that I think speak to some of the proclivities of David Cronenberg. And so he does make it his own film, but it is very much a gun-for-hire uh, kind of outing for uh, David Cronenberg. It is um, one of the least Cronenbergian films Cronenberg ever makes, um, especially in this sort of like horror master section of his career before he moves on to this sort of uh, indie art house auteur uh, later on. And so, um, you know, starting with maybe history of violence and moving forward, um, and and so it, it's it's a different kind of uh, thing in in terms of like you know this is Pete Cronenberg no not so much is it Pete Stephen King it's no no it's not that either but it's also interesting it's also fun it's also um, just uh, 
a great performance um, from Christopher Walken. Uh, really, really enjoyable there. And also Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen does a great job, too, uh, throughout the film. Uh, the guy that plays Frank Dodd, and I could take him or leave him. And uh, Tom Skerritt, even though he's only in it for 10 seconds, I would like more Tom Skerritt and more of that uh, relationship there. I'd be built out, although it's built out in some of the other Stephen King novels. Uh, at least not the relationship, just that particular character, I should say. Um, but, yeah, the movie's fine. It is, again, you know, as as Arthur was saying, kind of B-level, you know, King or B-level Cronenberg to see. It's average to above average, which means it's still enjoyable. It's inoffensive. There's nothing, like, you know, glaringly wrong. Uh, the ideal structure for this uh, property, I think, though, in terms of adaptation to the screen is uh, a TV miniseries, um, like on an HBO or, well, I mean, I would say an HBO because I think the adult content, I think, is important uh, for it. And so you have a three-parter where you have the first part of Johnny getting his powers, then you have the uh, Castle Rock Killer section, then you have uh, the Martin Sheen section, which I will, again, sort of avoid spoiling at this point, and each of them being 90-minute to two-hour films by themselves. Um, because there is a lot of development and there's a way in which the movie uh, does this I think quite well is that it creates a set of characters and settings and situations that you really do want to sit with you really do want to breathe with it and even mm. though um, you are given short shrift uh, in terms of your viewing experience in the 90 minute film you leave the film having enjoyed it and wanting more which is overall I think a positive kind of reaction to the film. And that's where I that's where I come in. I, I always react positively to it, but I, I definitely want more. I'm definitely desirous of something in in addition to what's going on. I want it weirder and more Cronenbergy. And I want it more Stephen King and plotty and uh more, you know, setting and se uh, situation and setup. I, I want lo lots and lots more of that as well. And uh but that's not necessarily a flaw. It's just adapting an entire novel into a 90-minute film. That's going to always be problematic in some ways. I mean, sometimes you can get away with it and do so in, in that lean time period and, and clearly sort of capture all of what's going on. I'm thinking about Gerald's Game from Netflix is a good example here, which sure. is a movie that maybe you don't want to watch again if you've seen it once. But that being said, uh, it does very much sort of handle its situation and then lets it breathe as much as it needs to breathe. Um, but the other example of that is Misery, that does it quite well. And these are all single character, single setting kind of films. And that's part of why it works. King's writing style is so expansive. And when filmmakers and screenwriters are trying to adapt it, they do find this unwieldy monster to deal with. And Yeah, we've got uh, uh, Jeffrey Bohm uh, adapting the screenplay here. And uh, yeah, I can't imagine getting the orders, hey, turn this 458-page novel into you know a tight 140 uh or uh you know hour and 40 rather uh that's that's a tall order for sure yeah and, and so and what we got is actually quite good com, com, you know I mean, just in terms of just relatively speaking but it does leave something to be desired but that left or that lackingness is not something in which i i i feel overly critical of it's something i i look at and go oh you know i wish i had more but what i got wasn't bad and uh, so I'm not mad about it, if that makes sense. So, I mean, that's, I don't know how middling that review is. I, I mean, I like it, but I, I, I could have liked it more. And uh, I'm aware of that. But even though I could have liked it more, it's not because there's something in it that really bothered me. It's just that the nature of the adaptation that we're dealing with. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts, uh, pro and con, regarding the Dead Zone adapted um, by um, Jonathan Baum. Joseph Baum, what did you say his name was? Jeffrey Boom. Jeffrey uh, Boom. 
Yeah, he uh, is not – weird filmography. Uh, last credit is The Phantom. Uh, he also uh, was the TV series creator, uh, the creator of the TV series The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. Oh. Uh, and did, uh, yeah, one of three credited writers on The Lost Boys. He's a credited writer on Last Crusade. So, yeah, it kind of seems like a real gun-for-hire type just looking at his career. It's kind of hard to find a through line in terms of – what he's doing other than the lethal weapon franchise, which he's got uh, credits on the first three. You, you mean, or, well, I'm sorry, uncredited on the first one, but you mean, IMDb says so. You mean the, uh, the Billy Zane vehicle, the phantom, right? Oh yes, Arthur. I do mean uh, the Billy Zane fronted the phantom. Uh, I love we, it. Uh, we, yeah, we stand Billy Zane uh, in this household listener. Uh, we, we love the man. We love his eyebrows. Nothing but respect. Correct. All right. Well, there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts. Let's move on and expand the syllabus. So now we are um, creating a thought experiment in which we create a class. And in that class, the entire class could be the dead zone for 16 weeks. I don't know who would do that. But or something about Stephen King or something about horror or something about Cronenberg or something about sociology or something about history or something about Maine. Um, It could be any class that you want to construct and within that structure you're using the dead zone again maybe for the whole class maybe for one class maybe for a little module of classes and we're expanding the syllabus that's what we call this section by adding additional readings to what we would be teaching so we have to explain a little bit about what we're teaching and how we would go about it and then talk about what those additional readings and or viewings films television shows what they might happen to be so uh, I'm going to go to you first Arthur how would you expand the syllabus using the dead Dead zone. Well, due to injury, uh, classes got canceled this week, so <laughs> I would allow the uh, students time to get caught up on other homework as uh, we weren't prepared to uh, get anything done for the dead zone. COVID-19, uh, you know, that's a thing, too. So, yeah, we can we have reasons for that. That is just fine. I understand. Um, Dalton, how are you expanding the syllabus, pal? Well, it's good uh, that uh, Arthur's students are getting a break because they'll need the, the time in my class because Uh-oh. I... Oh. Got three video games on my syllabus, which is a tall order. Uh, uh, I have something of a syllabus that is kind of both formed by what I've just been putting in my face this last week, uh, but also, I, you know, some through lines that I have found in the dead zone, uh, some works I've been thinking about, some works I've been consuming. Uh, so this is going to be a, probably a sociology of storytelling class. Uh, to, to Dustin's point about talking about setting the class, because we are going to be looking at stories, but I think they're going to be some kind of cursory dives that give us some more readings. Uh, it could also just be a, a media studies class, too. But what I, I'm interested in here is uh, death uh, and grief and stories they're about, but also how those things kind of interact with systems. Um, now that we are entering the uh, mildly spoilery section of the show, uh, we can say that you know politics do enter into the realm of the dead zone uh, by the end of the film, um, and all the works that I've tried to get definitely kind of address like larger social systems and how they interact with like the reality of human death and human grief and human trauma, um, and, and often how they are unequipped to deal with those things. We're going to start off with a film we all love here, and that is First Reformed. The thing about First Reformed that I, I think really pairs it with the dead zone well though is this this way in which death permeates the proceedings um and and to be not too spoilery on either uh it it is just a matter of uh, 
once we kind of cross into the end of the first act of First Reform, we understand uh, the, the stakes uh, in terms of just like human sadness uh, a little bit and the stakes in terms of uh, planetary uh, issues and how that can affect people on like a microcosmic scale, uh, you know, uh, zoomed in and both zoomed out. These these things have consequences and repercussions, which again, I think is kind of an interesting tie to the dead zone and where uh, Johnny's character arc kind of ends up. Uh, next, we are going to be looking at the television series Hannibal. It's newly uh, on Netflix. Uh, it's been a joy to rewatch it. Uh, but man, talk about a show that is just obsessed with death and how we feel about it. Uh, and watching it now, there are so many scenes of this series that are just conversations of, of therapy, especially in the first season. Lots of therapy sessions uh, and conversations about reckoning with like uh, the horror that is like humanities and humanity to one another, uh, which again I think pairs well with the the serial killer kind of plot line that runs through the middle. Uh, of the dead zone again we've got the character of will graham and, and the tv show hannibal who can experience and live murders as if he were there and committing them uh, much like johnny uh, so again i think a fun through line there but again being being a long form series it has that time to you know explore uh, how death feels to be around in ways that i think are interesting uh, we're also going to be looking at uh, train spotting and blind spotting, uh, just because I've been wanting to talk about those films together for a while because of the names, honestly, uh, but also because they do both deal with uh, systemic uh, issues that decrease people's lifespan, whether that be, uh, you know, systemic racism and police violence uh, or, uh, you know, drug addiction and police violence and, you know, a lack of a social uh, safety net equipped to deal with opiate addiction. Uh, but again, I, I think both of those films are, are dealing with the ever-presentness of death, whether that means, you know, being a heroin addict or a black person in America. Um, death is ever-present in both of those films, but there is a surreal, fantastical way in which it's engaged with in both of those movies. Um, that, you know, uh, not to tell David Cronenberg had to do his job, you know, 37 years uh, too late, but I think these films kind of get at what this film might want to do a little bit better in terms of using cinema style and storytelling uh, to kind of put you in a mood, put you in a vibe. Uh, next up, we are going to get to uh, the video games. There's some hot goss and uh, review bombing going on around The Last of Us Part Two. Uh, I do tend to chalk quite a bit up, uh, of, quite a bit of that up to nerds being mad they have to play as not one but two women in this video game. Uh, heavens to Murgatroyd, uh, the humanity. But I, I think this this game, while definitely mostly feeling like Blue Ruin the game, uh, is... <laughs> thank you, Dustin. Uh, I, I knew that that would appeal to you. It's very long, kind of maximalist, hyper-gory, hyper-sad. Uh, the, the term misery porn has been thrown around a little bit in early conversations of this game. Uh, but by making you play through and live through uh, a lot of violence in your pursuit of quote-unquote justice that's definitely just revenge, uh, this game makes you feel things uh, that revenge movies are not always able to do. Uh, but much like uh, its uh, counterpart uh, from 2013, uh, the year Hannibal started airing, coincidentally enough, uh, it, it tries. And that's worth something to me in a medium where violence is one of your uh, key, uh, not even key, I, I would just say the most common way 
the most common thing that comes to mind when people think of video games uh, is, you know, action and combat and conflict-oriented video games. And I think a video game that tries to, uh, outside of puzzles, you know, puzzle video games like Tetris have been around forever, but kind of the idea of the violent video game has sort of culturally assumed how we talk about video games. And I think a video game that wrestles with that legacy uh, is interesting, especially when it does try to, like, build real characters uh, and tell like real human stories about conflict and cycles of violence. And uh, when you take somebody's life, that's just not an, uh, uh, a pile of polygons. It's a real character that you've had to watch scenes of growth about. Uh, now, there's something interesting to that. I had another video game I was going to talk about, but we'll go ahead and cut this short because um, uh, I spent a lot of time on The Last of Us Part Two. Um, Dustin's making a smirk because uh, he's a jerk. Arthur smirked go first. Arthur well, smirked Arthur... first is daintily covered, much like Wilson, by the top of a laptop on the webcam. Uh, so I can't really see all of the bearded wonder. No, he smirked first. But I think that's great. I think it sounds like a very, very interesting class. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Um, so the class that I would be teaching in which I would use the dead zone uh, would be the 16-week version of the course would just be the small town in uh, on screen and in, in literature. And so... Uh, you know, we have a section we talk about Mayberry. We have a section we talk about Gunsmoke. We have a section we talk about Twin Peaks. Uh, and I haven't really thought about the rest of the entirety of the class. But then I think we spent a lot of time with uh, uh, Stephen King's fictitious small town, Maine. And uh, the three big uh, small towns that are fictitious in Maine are Derry, uh, famous for It!, and 112263 also uh, plays with that quite a bit. And so reading those, looking at some of the episodes of that, and then also um, Jerusalem's Lot, a.k.a. Salem's Lot, uh, with the uh, titular novel uh, and uh, film adaptation to be looking at there. But uh, the most part of what I'd be using the Dead Zone for is obviously talking about Castle Rock. Even though Johnny doesn't live in Castle Rock, uh, he is invited into uh, that town and, uh, and by George Bannerman and finds himself uh, investigating that serial killer. So the additional uh, viewings there, and the most of the Stephen King section would be dealing with Castle Rock itself, because most of it happens. We'd be looking at the short story, The Body, and Stand By Me. We would be looking at Cujo. We'd be looking at, and it's a company film, and then uh, Needful Things, uh, which uh, stars Max von Sydow uh, as uh, the, uh, the little shopkeeper, uh, and Ed Harris as our uh, Penghorn, I believe, is the sheriff at that time. Hmm. Um, I don't know that I would go into the dark half, although the dark half, uh, a lot of it takes place in Castle Rock as well, but I haven't seen the film, so I don't know if it's any good or not. Um, but the book's okay, and it's really just okay. Uh, but looking at that, and then finally, of course, um, you know, taking on the dead zone uh, with the accompanying film. And then lastly, Hulu's series Castle Rock, in which we sort of have a reimagining of that entire world, uh, connections into Shawshank and other uh, bits of Stephen King's universe, but all of that in this conversation about what is going on with the town, the small town itself. Um, there's a little book I would use for the whole class, uh, The Small Town in American Literature, hmm. and then I would also accompany probably our reading of it, and I've talked about this before, all the uh, little epigraphs over the big uh, sort of uh, section titles in it uh, take uh, from uh, William Carlos's William is Patterson 
uh, the long poem about uh, Patterson, New Jersey, as though the small town had a mind itself, that this sound, the town itself is structured like a mind. And so I think those are some interesting thoughts as well. So in my Stephen King section, um, that's what I would do is take on his uh, three particular main small towns and uh, wrestle with all of that. Um, and then, you know, off to Mayberry or wherever we do next. So, uh, but there you go, dear listener. That's a class, and a uh, your syllabus just got lots longer. Um, let's move on and get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're oh, trying to say yeah. And that business is, as always, analysis, my friends. Um, I'm going to begin because I, I have to sort of like present my argument a little bit. Um, because okay. it, what I'm what I'm thinking about in terms of uh, analysis right now is auteurship, which is something we bandy about a lot. And then, of course, we always disclaim, you know, auteurship is not the be all end all. David Cronenberg is not the author of the film, um, nor is Stephen King necessarily the author of the film. But uh, yet. Stephen King did write the story, and yet David Cronenberg did direct it. And the one of the things that we do when we talk about auteurship is we talk about those individual touches, that bit of personality that a, a set of films tends to have over the course of those films. And even though I talked about this being lesser Cronenberg, I think some of the differences in terms of the adaptation itself help us to see some of Cronenberg's proclivities himself. And I, and I find that to be kind of interesting. Uh, one of the first things I want to point out, uh, differences between the novel and the book, is um, that when Johnny decides not to sleep with his girlfriend and go home in the film, that's not the case in the novel. In the novel, uh, she reacts uh, perhaps to a hot dog, but also um, because of later events in the novel, she reacts perhaps to uh, The Shining itself. That because Johnny um, has a, an experience in the novel where he's at a Wheel of Fortune kind of roulette wheel kind of thing, and uh, he has a run of, of just knowing what number's next and makes a pile of cash. And uh, that makes her sick. And because she's vomiting, even though they'd already talked about it and they were going to sleep together that night, they opt not to because, you know, vomit mouth, not fun. Um, and so they don't do it that way. But for Cronenberg, interestingly enough, it is uh, because some things are worth waiting for. There's a, a bit of this sort of puritanical uh, kind of religious tinged bit of sexuality that kind of comes in also with the character of uh, Vera uh, Smith, who is uh, Johnny's mom, who um, we barely see in the film, and she plays a bigger role in the novel. But this idea of uh, sexual mores and sexual uh, deviance or uh, acceptance. And so to an extent, what ends up happening is Johnny acts in a quote-unquote puritanical kind of nobility earlier on in the film, which um, you know precipitates his accident. And then later on in the film, um, when she comes back to see him and meet with him and sleep with him, uh, what ends up happening is that uh, she um, does so, and it's, it's even more perverse. It's even more of kind of a, a violation of mores. So, Dustin, what's, what's the thing that's... Uh sexier in the book or more perverse about it just for context the book sake. is i think the book is less sexy in the sense i mean there's there's gotcha. a, okay yeah. I, I misunderstood what you were saying yeah yeah because uh, i'm with a, you a little more perverse i think yeah the, that was the thing i'm glad you brought this up because this whole plot line with uh brooke adams who we saw way way back uh when we talked about days of heaven uh the terrence oh, malick right, movie right right yep yeah yeah brooke adams is in that one uh, yeah, that whole subplot is got some real psychosexual Cronenberg vibes that I really dug because, and, and that was when I mentioned this film's kind of like 
uh, ambiguity of relationship, or I don't remember exactly how I phrased it, but in my review, this, this is what I was thinking of, because I think the subplot is really interesting, uh, especially the way Brooke Adams plays the, the, the scene where they say goodbye, right? She's already stayed the night, uh, and, and it's, it's a very sweet, like, yeah, I need, we both needed closure on this, but this is it, dude. Like, I've got a life separate from you. I got to go do my own thing. Uh, but the, the way both Walken and Adams, and I'm just shouting at Adams because I've seen a lot less of her work than Walken, uh, but there's like two or three scenes back to back with them in, in that section of the film. Man, I, I just went totally bananas for it. Really, really liked it. And uh, yeah, that was something I, I also thought of Dustin as Cronenbergian. Uh, you know, normally when we think of sexuality in his films, it is usually uh, uh, wackier, to say the least. Um, the, the perversion is not usually just like the violation of, you know, uh, t- a social taboo, like a marriage contract. Uh, but, but here, yeah, that's enough. And the complexity of the feeling is there. It's, it's not, uh, psychosexual for, you know, the shock or, uh, not, it's just not normally what we would get in a Cronenberg movie. Uh, yeah. the, 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 that element is deployed for different reasons, usually, at least in the, the work of his that I'm familiar with. Uh, and, and in this, yeah, there's a sweetness and a, and a softness to it, uh, while also still being quite taboo. Right, and it's it's much more of a taboo-crossing sort of journey for Johnny's character, the way it's played out, as opposed to Johnny, who's going to sleep with this woman anyway, was fully intending to. It's like, oh, wait, you're sick. I'm going to be a nice guy and not do that because, you know, you don't feel well and be all expecting or whatever. And so that's how that date ends, and then, you know, he gets into a cab and gets into his accident. Um and so what, what Cronenberg does in that very, very subtle kind of shift there is just make it a, a, a larger sort of, again, psychosexual journey um, transition in some of the values that we see in Johnny. Now, that being said, it still ends up being this is the one thing. We're getting closure. Same thing in the novel. It, it is like, you know, this is, you know, we got to, you know, this is just we, we have to sort of, you know, cut the tension or whatever uh, with this particular act. So that's that's one of the shifts. The other big shift that I think is interesting is the mode of murder uh, by Frank Dodd. Uh, Frank Dodd is a strangler in the novel, and uh, which is in some senses um, more disgusting and more sort of perverse um, because, it, you know, his moment of ejaculation is the strangulation itself, right? And so there's some masturbatory readings and those kinds Jesus, of Jesus, that's a Stephen King detail if yeah. ever I heard one. Right, for sure. But for Cronenberg, he's murdering with scissors, right? And it's the uh, sort of standard slasher kind of penetrate, penetrative act uh, that that goes on there, and when Frank Dodd kills himself in the novel, he eats rat poison and just is dead on the toilet. Um, in the case of the film, he self penetrates with the scissors, and again, there is something really kind of fascinatingly Cronenbergian going on with that. And uh, you know, I don't know if I have a lot more to say about what that means other than what what I've already said, but those little bitty detail shifts help us to see that there is a filmmaker who has a set of interests, who has a set of propensities, proclivities, and those things sort of shine forth in, even though it's using someone else's intellectual property, even though he's using somebody else's work, those itty bitty changes themselves lend themselves well to things that we'll see even with like David Cronenberg's performance in a movie like Nightbreed there are there are ways in which that parallels Frank Dodd in interesting kinds of ways as well um even though he's not the director it's Clive Barker in this case 
Um, so there there are ways in which it still plays out in a um, you know no tourist uh, fingerprinty kind of fashion, if that makes sense. And so um, even though it is again sort of a gun for hire kind of work, I think it definitely does qualify itself as a Cronenbergian work, even though it's maybe subdued compared to what you might see in the Fly remake or uh, what you would see in you know his earlier um, you know uh, films like um, Rabbit or. My brain is not the brood. The brood, yeah, it's brood and scanners and those kinds of films. Thank you very much, Arthur. My brain was getting chalked up full of dust there, and it was not coming through. So um, that's the first. Oh yeah, I knew all about that. Uh, It is weird. I know about the chalked up brain, Dustin. It's weird. You know, you just kind of were mentioning some of his earlier work. I want to kind of like shout out the run uh, of films that the Dead Zone falls in because you got the Brood, Scanners, Videodrome, Dead Zone, Fly, and those were like some of his most extreme films in terms of like gore effects or just like um, body horror. I, I don't know. Body, yeah, body horror. I guess body horror is actually kind of one of the things I was most specifically thinking of. But I, I don't know. Videodrome uh, and The Fly are both super sexual. And I know the brute, I haven't seen the brute, but obviously I know it that's is kind of part of his deal too. Um, I, I don't know. It's a weird run for him with the dead zone, just kind of seeming to be a, a studio guarantor for the fly. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm glad you, you pointed out the scissor scene, Dustin, cause I hadn't really thought about it while watching it, but it is a very, uh, it definitely seems like he had one of his, uh, his friends doing the effect on that for sure. It looked, there was a, a look to it that kind of reminded me of the effects and a lot of his early stuff. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. For sure. So, uh, and, you know, Dead Ringers later on and, uh, you know, even Naked Lunch, uh, you're going to see a lot more of that sort of, you know, telltale Cronenberg kind of stuff. But, you know, this film, though it is a, a, you know, gun for hire kind of work, you still can identify it. And I think that's an interesting exercise to do analytically, um, to simply say, okay, so here's here's a work in which, um, you know, you're bound by a studio, you're bound by the work of a a well-known author and a well-known novel, and yet still there is a glimmer of the reflection of the filmmaker still at work there. And so that's part of why auteurship still has legs. It's part of why, even though we, again, we disclaim it every time we talk about it, there's something to it still. And uh, Cronenberg's no exception. Alrighty. Um, so let's move on. Um, I, I want to save, I'm going to save the assassination. Um, yeah, we've got that's going to be the end of it. Yeah, there's gotta, no way we can talk about anything after we talk about that. Um, but uh, so can we talk about vignettes more for a second? Oh yeah, it's like uh, structure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because you know I brought it up already, but this really is kind of a sectioned off almost. Uh, you know, there, there's like a, a a real airlock quality to segments of this film. Sometimes they are so divorced from one another. Uh, not, not all of them, obviously. You know, especially the stuff with Frank Dodd and the the hot the hockey team, like all that that stuff. Like there is kind of a you know, there's a propelling of events to it. But there certainly is a a way in which they're kind of sectioned off from each other. And um, I don't know. Normally, I'm, I'm more into that, as I said earlier. But it's it's not quite working for me here. Um, is the novel uh, kind of like this? I, are we just kind of inter- just seeing interesting incidents where his psychic powers are inconveniencing him or helping him? I mean, I think what we have here is one of those problems of adaptation insofar as the novel does sort of run in sections, right? So you've got, uh, you've got Johnny up to the carnival, 
right? And which is mm-hmm. kind of covering him and his life and his teaching career and all that good stuff. And all then, jettisoned for the film. And then you've got a, a pretty long section of uh, the hospital for the sake of just, you know, people arriving and meeting each other um, in terms of the girlfriend and the parents and introducing those characters at the moment of the accident. Then you have his recovery moment. And again, it sort of, you know, elides weeks in time a little bit, the novel does. And then it jumps forward to a few months later when he finally gets home to his dad's and a few months later after some events and a few months later. And so the the novel itself is pretty time-wise expansive. I, I don't know exactly the dates of when the accident happens, like 1970, and it goes to about 78 or something yeah. like that. It covers like an eight-year period. And so the, the, the adaptation, I think, in order to give a sense of time going by, that's why it does that vignette kind of cutting. Uh, and what it gives me is a sense, and I think this is maybe what you're brushing up against, Dalton, is that sense of I'm reading a novel, but I'm just skipping and reading about five pages here and about five pages there and then ten pages and then, you know, maybe one page. And it gives this sort of um, cut-up feeling. It, 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 you know, you can do something really vignette and something triptych style, and it feels really integrated. And this does feel a bit more chopped. Yeah, each each segment feels too truncated. Yeah, there, the, there's too much missing. The edges uh, are ragged. Some, yeah. Yeah. Uh, th- there's not enough fat. You know, weirdly. Yeah. You, you sometimes you want less, but sometimes you need more. And that that was why I kept a- I kept asking kind of both of you about what you remember about the structure of the novel because yeah, Jeffrey Bohm's uh, from a just a structural standpoint, um, you got to assume some of those bones are in place from the screenplay, although especially. In the fast and loose days of the '80s, there's no telling what you know uh, shooting script actually uh, you know looked like. But there is that, yeah. There's a truncation to it, and it does. You kind of have kept mentioning the process of adaptation, Dustin, and it does kind of feel like uh, you just picture uh, Mr. Bohm working away at his desk with a copy of this novel, just like ripping out pages, underlining like paragraphs, uh, because it definitely has that feel of uh, okay. There's too many things that I can't fully get rid of because so many of them are connected, but I don't really have time, uh, like page time, to let any of these moments breathe. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm glad you, you brought up them not being well integrated because that's exactly what I've kind of been I think another, on. another part of that is that, you know, you keep talking about Bohm, but this is a script that went through several revisions and drafts, including, I believe, they brought Bohm in to do a draft, and then they went a different direction. I think King got to do a draft as well. And then when Cronenberg came aboard, he did his variation of it and kind of altered it. Uh, so you've got multiple voices in here kind of doing a thing. And I think the trip tech structure was primarily Cronenberg's idea, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to kind of carry that over. Uh, mm. And I think what really, where it fails is, you know, this is back to Dalton's point. This is really Johnny's story and how his power and his sight into the dead zone um, impacts his day-to-day life and him grappling with how he should use that, should he use it, when should he use it. And I think that's where the film kind of fails because we only really get to see him wrestle with that once, maybe twice. We we get that kind of, you know, why did God do this to me a moment when he's talking to his dad about Frank Dodd. And then he kind of has that when he is uh, tutoring the kid and the dad, you know, wants to do the hockey game. And so he's got a couple of those moments uh, where he does wrestle with it, but I think his failure to really dive into that aspect of the character and that mindset and the failure to not really deal with the brevity of the situation is, is kind of what undercuts it. And so it does get really truncated because I mean, all of those segments are real. I mean, I, I think the most fleshed out one is the, the 
day encounter with uh, the the girlfriend. Um, yeah. And so the Frank Dodd stuff feels really rushed, and then the stuff of Sheen feels really rushed as well. And so I think if those had been able to ruminate in the same manner as that first section, um, it would have played a little stronger. Absolutely. I want to bookmark that idea of fate and come back to it for a second, Arthur. But before we do that, I want to close the book a little bit on um, the uh, structure stuff, um, because I think part of the reason why it does come off so wonky is part of the way Stephen King wrote the novel in that um, each event, it's not really a memoir insofar as like it's not full of like extraneous, erroneous kind of detail. It's sort of like long set up to um, what we would call in film studies a set piece. And so, long setup, and then there's a car accident. Long setup, and then he uh, comes out of the coma. Long setup, and then suddenly he's, um, I, you know, he knows about the fire for the physical therapist. Long setup, and then there's the sex scene with the ex-girlfriend. Long setup, and then there's the uh, Frank Dodd confrontation. Long setup, there's a confrontation with Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen, and so they themselves, you know, you've got so much screen time you've got to use for a set piece in order for it to actually effectively be a set piece that you don't have the time for the setup, and so. So that's one of the ways in which you know novels themselves find you know, are irksome um, to adapt, and this particular um, novel itself is full of lots of set pieces. The the, the kid, um, you know, a number of other things that take place. You know, the ho- there's not a hockey team thing in the in the book, but it's the same kind of thing um, that takes place that he predicts there. And so each of those individual events, if you're going because they're so important to the overall narrative structure. If you're going to do that, then you don't have any time to do that, and you sort of string, just figure out a way to just to floss, you know, and stitching and you know whatever thread and hair and duct tape to sort of bind together those set pieces. And I think that's that's the trouble that I think we we've, we're running into in watching the film. For sure, and uh, I didn't realize Arthur. Uh, again, we've only got the one uh, credited uh, writer, so I didn't realize. Not surprised that it had a long production history. That's just kind of the case for a lot of adaptations but also Stephen King adaptations but yeah that was kind of the picture I was trying to paint Dustin is yeah somebody trying their best to stitch together the things that are going to be very visually interesting in this novel Uh, which yeah you know sometimes it works out super well and sometimes it doesn't absolutely um I want to move on to Faith though because I do think the movie does play with those ideas and it's 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 an interesting twofer because it's it's a both and kind of solution there's a sense in which Johnny cannot avoid the accident I mean, he could have. There were things he could have done, but the way the film sort of puts it together in the novel as well, the headaches and uh, the wheel, of, you know, the roulette wheel, if you're reading the book, but all of those things sort of lead their way to this accident. And the way in which it's sort of inevitable that he knows about certain events, you know, even when he's not looking, like the uh, physical therapist fire um, in her home or his home in the case of the movie, her home in the case of the book. Um, The characters change genders. Um, And so those kinds of things take place, and then the way in which Johnny and Johnny's mom, Vera, both talk about sort of God's will and what God has done, and, you know, um, that, you know, Johnny, you're here for a purpose, Vera's saying, or Johnny's saying, God, you did me a real, you know, good one there um, by, you know, put me in this car accident, wrecking my body, losing me my girl, and then give me this terrible burdensome gift, right? And and the way in which there's a, a sense in which you're out of control. But at the same time, you've got his vision of the hockey kids drowning or fire at a 
you know, a country club, uh, in the case of the novel, same event, but different, slightly different circumstances. He knows about them, he says some things, and things happen differently. Or seeing this possible future in which Martin Sheen's character is elected president and uh, calls on a nuclear war. Now we're full out in the spoiler territory. Um, and he has to kill him in order to stop that. And so there's ways in which the the the, the movie sort of gives us an idea of a, a world and a future that is written and that we are unable to avoid it. And I think that seems to be something Stephen King is really interested in. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, there are small changes that we can make. And I don't know what we want to say about that philosophically. It's sort of predestination and free will if you want to get theological with it. But um, it's just an interesting well, there- thing to be this, thinking about. Yeah, and it also enters into – this is something that you've kind of both touched on separately, and now it's kind of come together. Uh, Dr. Sam, uh, played by Herbert Wom, brings this in right when he presents him with the opportunity for closure. Um, so if you you know if you decide to listen to this and didn't watch the movie or it's been a while, uh, a reminder that Johnny's uh, doctor, uh, who's kind of shepherding him through having uh, psychic abilities, is a Holocaust survivor. Um, and – he finds uh, his doctor's uh, – he gives his doctor enough information to find his family, and his, uh, his doctor – this is the first moment in which Johnny is trying to use his powers for just like kind of purely nice reasons. You know, there's no murder involved. There's no potential death involved. It is just trying to offer somebody closure, um, and, and much like his relationship with Sarah, that, that closure can only exist in so much – and in, uh, in kind of a – an elusive way, right? Because Dr. Sam says, I'm happy to know this. That door has to remain closed. It's not fair to other people involved to open that door. Um, so, you know, the, the predestination question isn't really uh, factoring in so much there, Dustin, but there is kind of a philosophical question about like what actions are moral, what actions are ethical uh, that I think we'll certainly play with when we get to uh, Greg Stilson's uh, arc. Well, yeah, I mean, what, what Dr. Sam is saying is that it's meant to be and it's not meant to be for me to know, and that the consummation of the relationship is the consummation of a relationship that is still not meant to be. And so yeah. we're, we're sort of taking a little bit of it for ourselves, but it, we also realize that this is sort of a bracketed, compartmentalized sort of moment, and it has to remain just there because it's not meant to be. Um, and yet Johnny sees futures that are meant to be, that are, that are going to be, and chooses to alter that. And I just find it to be sort of metaphysically really interesting. This idea that totally. that 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 you know history itself and the future is a novel already written, and yet you can change the end of the story. Um, I, again, metaphysically, just find that really fascinating. That there are real sort of counterfactuals in, uh, which is one of the, the debates in you know this sort of metaphysical um, philosophy that sometimes you engage if you're reading you know certain texts. Um, Go ahead. To dip a toe back into autorism, Dustin, it is kind of an interesting quirk of Stephen King's, this way he uh, weaves characters together, both like major and minor, um, in kind of a, a loom of fate. And, you know, sometimes in his interconnected universe, but usually just kind of like within the, the web of a story. But, you know, we were talking about this off air recently, Arthur, we were talking about Dr. Sleep, both the film and the novel, and, you know, the way it kind of weaves The Shining together, uh, but also the ways in which that novel, like, has lots of threads that become relevant that either got cut for the movie or entangled in an interesting way. But again, I just bring it up to say this it's an interesting aspect of Stephen King's work is this way he wants to, uh, or tries to convey the interconnectedness of people in the way that it is kind of an uh, an engine of fate in its own way, right? Kind of regardless of whether or not uh, 
uh, monsters or gods are interfering. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess I would just simply say the metaphysical sort of maybe, I don't know, living your life kind of um, application of this kind of idea is that at every moment at which you exist, the future is entirely written, but you have another moment coming. And it could be different. And you don't know, and sometimes you have an idea, sometimes parts of it you can foresee and sometimes you can't, you know, perhaps there's a God who can or can't, you know, all that kind of, you know, theological stuff comes into it as well. But every given moment is a, presents you an entirely written future, and at the same time, an entirely blank slate that you can rewrite. So it's the question of continuing in a path or changing, altering, veering, or whatever uh, throughout all that. And I find that to be just kind of a fascinating way to sort of approach uh, life and living that is both um, you can trust that there is something guiding, there is a loom at work, and at the same time you can believe in your actual libertarian freedom in your actions, which is kind of a, a, a good way to sort of Un unravel some of those Aristotelian knots um, and Augustinian knots that we have found ourselves in in Western civilization for the last, you know, uh, 1,700 years or so. So Well, and if then you start folding in uh, the quantum ideas about what reality looks like, right? I mean, you, you've got your, uh, your history of philosophy up until now, but then you also have your uh, uh, current workings and theorizings within the field, the, the realm of quantum physics and shit and how really people way smarter than any of us uh, think about the universe and it gets even more interesting. Um, opinions differ on this show. So don't consider this like a recommend, but devs, uh, which was originally for FX and moved over to Hulu, uh, the Alex Garland series uh, does this uh, in an interesting way, Dustin uh, kind of playing around with this idea of uh, having your cake and eating it too about predestination. Uh, where in that yeah the future is set but it is a uh, you know each moment uh i'm glad you brought this up i had a fun conversation about this uh related to a episode of hannibal that i just watched uh but yeah i, I like this the, the idea that each moment is kind of a schrodinger's cat of a moment is uh yeah it's a fun idea man um i want to move on though to the last thing the main thing the thing the yeah the big one the big thing so um we got to talk about still man still well still Stilson. Stilson. See, I yeah, I don't know. You it, knew it was a boring surname. Yeah, and I knew it was Martin Sheen. Um, because I mean, obviously, this is like the alternate universe with evil Josiah Bartlett, um, who's not from New Hampshire but instead from Maine. Uh, and so that's what makes it all go wrong for Josiah Bartlett, and the West Wing goes in a different direction. But also, love your head cannon. There, there is a strong parallel to some current events well i will say this has been rattling around in my head for about a week uh and I, i've been kind of just debating where i was going to drop this but uh there's this podcast i really dig uh it's kind of a news and analysis show it's uh, true billy workers party uh but uh, terrence uh, on that podcast uh, said something that's really been resonating with me so i'm going to throw this football out because it seems like a good time to drop it but he said uh, we're just trying to enhance our analysis and make our position stronger based on our context uh, and I, I bring that to the table to say that's, you know, the three of us are just some knuckleheads at Mike's. We like talking to each other and we like talking about movies. But boy, howdy, uh, is it hard to talk about art and media without talking about politics, especially when they feature uh, figures uh, that parallel to the real world. So, so interestingly, in terms of, again, this is a deliberately, it seems, a political figure within the film because it's a Hollywood film. Uh, but there is a yeah a certain brashness to him that we all know and love these days. 
Yeah, there, there's that. I mean, he's a third-party candidate. Um, I, I think it's very clear in the novel. I think it's clear in the film, too, isn't it? Yeah, he mentions yes. that okay. at the rally. Yes. Okay, so yeah, you, you I, know, doing his sort I of— I say apolitical only to, to say that, yeah, his positions are not, like, firmly established. But, yeah, he definitely is set up as third-party. Yeah, I mean, working man kind of stuff. I mean, that—I mean, populism, I mean, is really what he's running under. And we don't know what that is. You know, left or right populism, we don't really know from the film— well, particularly that looks like, although it does tend to sort of read, I think, pretty righty in terms of its populism. Um, yeah, he's got a line that um, I don't I don't know how it reads for all viewers of this film, but he's got a line um, that isn't like he, he never has like, you know, a fully racist line, but he has a, an anecdote uh, about black people that definitely yeah. like rings as a. Uh, Martin Sheen trying to sell you on that this guy's definitely racist because he has no idea how to tell this story uh, in a way that's people aren't going to chase him out of his house. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're right. His politics are kind of nebulous, but there is that one scene that definitely seems coded to imply uh, that he's a bigot. Yeah, I, I, and I, I think so as well. Um, but what's really clear in it is, is the way in which it's about machismo, it's about mm -hmm. power and strength, it's about looking... Uh, a, it, it, it really is kind of a TV-styled um, candidacy. And uh, that's clear. And on top of that TV style candidacy in which this candidate looks good and plays to a certain particular um, segment of the electorate uh, in, in order to get elected, um, there's, you know, the lights are on, but nobody's home. But this guy's kind of a moron. Right. And I, I mean, that's I mean, again, now I'm obviously I'm showing my own political underwear here a little bit, but um which I know long-time listeners of the show would not be surprised to know. Um, but yeah, th that seems to be the same kind of thing when you have a reality TV star uh, becoming president. You find out that they're not good at policy and um, not good at understanding the intricacies of government and uh, will make brash and rash decisions. Uh, in the case of Martin Sheen's character, it's the most severe of brash and rash decisions uh, to rush to a nuclear war, which you know basically destroys the whole you know, planet um, in Johnny's vision. Um, so, yeah, um, what we're saying is um, still son is Trump, is what we're trying to say, dear listener. Well, yeah, we're, we're saying it in that every fucking villain from the 1980s in Hollywood was a Trump figure. There is a reoccurrence in the American consciousness uh, of certain, whether it's, you know, your, your Old West snake oil salesman, your Depression-era revivalist uh, scam artist, your 80s-era revivalist scam artist, uh, you know, whatever. We, we talk about uh, the American grift on this show a lot and this kind of brash personality. Uh, God, we've talked about it a couple episodes in recent months, I think. But yeah, whether I, I think Dustin is definitely not uh, out to lunch on that assertion. Um, but, you know, it's... <sighs> It's a symptom of American machismo, as Dustin said, more than anything. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about on our Crimson Tide episode, uh, talking about the potential for nuclear Armageddon. Uh, gee, we really probably should have a better system for this, huh? Than one person gets to just say, let's party, and we party. Um, yeah, you'd think you'd want more hands uh, on deck for the decision on whether or not we're lighting that particular candle. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And again, so the, 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 the novel you know, and the film show us that um, Johnny shakes his hand and realizes he's going to do this. And then we have the sort of you know, time travel Hitler 
um, kind of, um, you know, question if you could go back in time, kill Hitler and save six million people, would you do so? Uh, you can look forward to the future, see this person's going to do this, would you go ahead and kill them? Um, and I do think what the novel does resolve that is interesting because it does not valorize the violence that somebody could read The Dead Zone in 2020 and say, Stephen King has just told me to do uh, a crime, a federal crime that will get you arrested um, just for talking about doing it, right? And well, yeah, I would, re I would refer our listeners quickly to a Why Does Kids You Know sketch uh, if they're needing some legal advice on this matter. Uh, the legality is quite clear. Uh, you can't, it's illegal. Don't say it. You can't say you want to do it. You can't say how you would do it. Yeah, it's you, very illegal. You can't say somebody should. I mean, yeah, so none of that, you know. I mean, and, and again, that's not what I'm doing. Um, but what the film does... You no, know, Dustin, is, Dustin is merely pointing out that it is illegal to do so. Right, and that you might misread the film or novel to suggest that, that, that it is suggesting this kind of thing. Because what ends up happening when Stilson uh, cowers behind the body of a child... Um, it ends his career, right? Um, there's a photograph taken. He's on the cover of Newsweek, you know, using a child as a human shield, and his political career is over because, you know, that is not. Go I mean, that's just not how we play bridge. Um, and so that, I don't know. In 2020, that might just be seen as a true alpha move. The more I think about it, uh, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that kind of occurrence would would definitely not play well. It would play weak. You know, which is, you know, when when the only thing you're playing against or playing for, rather, in terms of getting elected is strength, you know, if that's all you're doing and then you do something that week, I mean, you're toast, right? Um, but, so, I, I simply say that you allow circumstances to play out as they play out and weakness will out. Um, because it turns out the ones that talk the most, the ones who swagger the most, the ones who strut the most, the ones who, who bow their... Um, shoulders and, and stick out their chest the most turn out to be the biggest chickens, right? And so let that happen, and everyone will see is sort of part of what I think this is suggesting as well. It's interesting that we see King revisit this later, and Dustin, you've already mentioned 112263, but it is interesting that we see King revisit this idea that one person in history, uh, one political figure, one president can be the the tipping point uh, in history. And, and again, I think in 11-22-63, that gets played with, interestingly, right? Yeah. So spoilers for that. The JFK assassination is stopped, and it turns out uh, nuclear Armageddon happens uh, because of JFK. instead of like a piss-poor neoliberal uh, hellhole that uh, he, he leaves to stop the JFK assassination. It does, in fact, make it worse. It gets way worse. Uh, so he has to go back and allow the assassination to take place because... It, 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 again, Dustin, you've talked about the metaphysics of uh, of this film and of uh, of kind of this idea of uh, the future being uh, foretold. Uh, it's interesting to see King kind of come at it from two different angles and two different works. Um, and again, I only bring up that other work because I think it's just I don't know. It's kind of fun in this thought exercise that we're we're having with talking about this uh, in, in terms of you know you, you've mentioned the the strength. Uh, aspect of, of of this kind of character in the film of this sort of nebulously populist guy. If we remove the politics of a, a you know a nebulously populist figure and we just kind of focus on can one you know it's it's the inverse of the great man of history theory, right? Can one great evil person like really just do that big of a number on the arc of human history? 
Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. I'm not here to answer that question, but it is interesting that King has thought about it a lot. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the question and the thought experiment that we don't end up having in the film or the novel is that if you assassinate a Hitler in 1931, do the Jews still experience the Holocaust? Because, you know, the ingredients for Nazism are there anyway, and fascism yeah. is its own thing. And so just because... Hitler is not running the show doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Right. Totally. I mean, you don't need uh, Trump to to kick off American neo-fascism. Uh, right. The the groundswell was was rising. Uh, you just kind of needed the party to get to somebody to say the party has started now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it is an interesting uh, thing that you have in history in terms of just looking at personalities, but also the, the you know the the myriad factors that create uh, a, a loom of fate, uh, however we phrased it earlier. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, let's render a verdict. Shelf or trash with the dead zone? What do you say, Dalton? No, it's fine. Throw it away. I don't need it. Uh, better walking, better king adaptations, uh, better Cronenberg. Very good, very good. What do you say, Arthur? I agree. I'm going to very uh, lightly just toss it in the in the trash. I, I also feel that it is disposable. It's good. I enjoy it, but um, I wouldn't. I don't need to own it, and so I would also do that. And it's probably the only Cronenberg and one of the very few Stephen King adaptations that I would say that about. Although there's more Stephen King than the Cronenberg in my particular trash bin because he is a hard one to adapt. So we have another movie. Yeah, Arthur? they don't well, always come. Go ahead. I was just going to say they don't always come out smoothly. Sorry, audio issue on my end. Well, uh, yeah, we will do another movie, but I'll uh, get to that in a second. Uh, if you want to talk to us about The Dead Zone, you can find us on Twitter at good underscore trash. Let us know if we're right or wrong about that. Um, and then uh, go follow us on Twitter. Go ahead and like us on Twitter, because uh, in the coming weeks, we're about to start a, a brand new marathon of sorts. We're actually going to be doing something really, I think, fun and dynamic. Uh, we're going to be doing the How Have We Never Covered Marathon. And uh, we have taken 64 movie titles and put them into a bracket. And you are going to help us choose the next four movies that we do in July um, by voting each week on these these movies uh, in a big, fun, madness tournament. Uh, so make sure you are following us on Twitter so you can vote there. Also, we're on Facebook. Go rate, review, subscribe, that whole shtick. Um, if you want to email us, you can do that at goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. I took over those duties because next week's movie is actually a Patreon pick, and I'm going to let Dalton handle those duties. Now, Arthur, real quick, is that good underscore trash if they want to follow us on Twitter? That is good underscore trash. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. Uh, no, that, that was very sweet of you to take those duties. I am happy to take these duties. Um, trying to say duty a lot. Uh, because we do have uh, a Patreon pick coming up. We just got uh, Brigham's pick uh, out, out of the way earlier. Um, so we do like to do this for our, our patrons who give at a certain level. We let them pick a film. Uh, so again, we just uh, had a, a grand old time. Oh my gosh, well, what did we just watch for uh, Brigham's pick? Help uh, me Jacob's out. Ladder. Thank you. Just had a total brain fart. We had a great old time watching Jacob's Ladder, and now we have another patron to help, and it's somebody that I have duties to it's my wife uh my very my very nice spouse gave us some money because uh, she wanted to pick a movie and i told her you know we can just do a movie you want us to do right and she didn't want to cheat and i respect that about her that's why i married her uh so the the famous uh doctor mrs dr girlfriend uh, as she has been called in various forms throughout the years becca has picked american mary 
for us uh, from the Soska sisters uh, starring uh, Catherine. Oh, forgot her last name. It's okay, though. We'll talk about her career next week. I'm very excited. Arthur, have you seen this one? I have not. I am excited to finally get to watch it. I have wanted to uh, for a long time, and I just never got around to it. So very, very excited for this pick. Yep, yep. I, I'm excited. I'm excited to revisit it. Dustin, you've seen this a couple of times, right? I've only seen it once. Oh, okay. So no. two revisits. Uh, th- this is going to be a fun one. Uh, I'm excited. Lots to talk about. That's for sure. If you're uh, keeping up with the podcast and you're wanting to watch ahead, uh, trigger warning, I think we'll say now. We'll say at the opening of the show, though, there is a sexual assault uh, that occurs. And so just simply be aware of that. So um, that's all I have to say uh, about that. Um, are we done? I just think that it's important to take away that even if you sleep with one of us, uh, you don't get to mandate uh, what we do on the show. So I think that's no, that's very true. That's... Yeah, Arthur is absolutely right. We are steadfast in our convictions, and we will not be swayed uh, by anything such as paltry, carnal pleasures. There you go. All right. Well, there you go, dear listener. You keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid.